the world is filled with begging and pleading by men and women in desperate situations. Children, too. Spouses and lovers beg for one more chance. Employees plead with their bosses not to be fired. Siblings will plead with one another not to tell mom or dad. When we get desperate in the proportion that we are suffering and feeling pain, we are given to begging and pleading. I saw a video this week of a small business. A guy comes in to rob the place. He walks in, starts yelling, open up the register, open it up. The manager and another employee or says to another employee, don't open it, come with me. And then the manager and the other employee slip out the front door. The burglar doesn't mind. He thinks they've just abandoned the store in fear. He proceeds to attempt to get the cash from behind the counter. But then he looks up to see the manager outside of the store locking him in. The storefront windows and the front door were barred like a jail cell. The burglar put his hands on his head and walked in circles. He put his, took his gun out and shot the lock several times. It didn't work. He tried running and kicking the door open and it wouldn't budge. Unable to forcefully exit, looking out the storefront from behind bars, he fell to his knees, clasped his hands together, raised them above his head and began desperately pleading through the storefront as if already in prison. Please, please, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, please. And showing his hands were empty, he began to say, please, I have, I have nothing, I have nothing, please, please. And then he stood and addressed God, shaking the door. He cried, God, help, please, no. Have you ever talked to God like that before? Begging and pleading for God to do something to take you away from the suffering or save you from your situation. To take the pain away. To ask God to forgive you. I like the old country song, ask God not to take the girl. Maybe just ask God to give you another chance. When we find ourselves in suffering, we tend to plead with God in two ways. One... We tend to ask for forgiveness a lot. And we pray, God, get me out of here. Maybe you've refused to talk to God like that, period. Maybe you've tried and you've given up. Maybe you're just jaded about God. God doesn't care. There's no use begging and pleading. God doesn't change His mind. Why bother Him? Well, can we plead with the Almighty? Can we plead with the Almighty? Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for your word, which we are now giving ourselves to, that you would help us hear it not only with the ears on our heads, but with the hearts in our chests. That our souls will be awakened, encouraged, convicted, to continue walking in faith, to repent from sin and disbelief, that we might fear you and keep your commands. 
Help us, Father, you know where we are in our lives today, what we've been through this week, and what we will wake up to tomorrow. Help this word, trust you, and obey. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as Marilyn read, we're in the book of Job, and Job is a man who has lost everything. Go back with me in the first chapter of Job just to remember how the book of Job started and what is the great dilemma of the book of Job. Job chapter 1, verse 1 through 3. Job was a man who lost everything. And the conundrum is, why did God take everything from him? Job 1, 1 through 3, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and he turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and, every, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people in the East. Well, the chapter goes on to tell us that the Lord permitted Satan to take all those things away from him. Even his own health, his own body was covered with sores, which he scraped with shards of clay pot for relief. And then Job's friends come and comfort him for a while, but then they start to ask questions. Doesn't make sense, Job. Righteous don't suffer like this. Good things happen to good things, bad people, good people, bad things happen to bad people, Job. Something must be wrong. Your your mourning seems out of place. And we get this wonderful friend named Bildad in Job chapter eight. Look again. Bildad says, Quit moaning. Go plead with God. Chapter 8, verse 2. How long will you say these things, Job? How long will you go on mourning and defending yourself? Let the words of your mouth like a great wind. Does God pervert justice? The implication is no, He doesn't do that. Or does the Almighty pervert the right? God doesn't do that. How about this one? If your children have sinned against Him... He has delivered them into the hands of their transgression. Now that's low. Job had been making sacrifices for his children in case they sinned. What do you think you should do? What do you think Job should do? When you hit this level of loss, when you find yourself suffering for known or unknown reasons, what do you do towards God? What do you typically do? What do people in the world do? What do you counsel others to do? What have others counseled you to do? Bildad says, you can go to God and plead with Him. Go beg. Verse 5, Bildad says, if you will seek God... That sounds innocent enough. You go find God. I mean, how about that for an errand for someone who is suffering? Well, first of all, if you'll just go seek God, just go find Him. No big deal. And plead with the Almighty for mercy, verse 5. If you'll just go lay it out there, begging God to be merciful. That's the word plead, to, to go make a, a big emotional appeal. 
clasp your hands together, get on your knees, shed tears, cry out asking God to change everything. And verse 6, if you're pure and upright, surely then He will rouse Himself for you. God will rouse Himself. You get the idea that God is like a dad in a recliner on a Sunday afternoon being asked to take the trash out. If you bother him enough, maybe he'll rub his eyes and maybe grumble a little bit, but he'll wake himself up and do something about something. Job, God's a little sleepy. He's not really paying attention. But if you plead with him, he'll rouse himself up to your case. And when he gets up, verse 6, and restore your rightful habitation. That rightful set of circumstances that you earned and that you are owed because of your blamelessness and your uprightness, Job. Verse 7. You go and you plead with the Almighty and you beg for mercy. And though your beginning was small, your latter days will be very great. That's tempting and it sounds encouraging. You've lost a lot, but if you'll go plead with God, and if you'll go beg with God, He'll make it even better than it was before. You've had one miscarriage. Maybe if you go plead with God, He will give you two children. This is a not-so-thinly-veiled prosperity gospel. You've lost things. You deserve things. If you go and pray, God will restore those things and more. A few years ago, a friend and I, in partnership on our Texas Ethics and Religious Liberty Committee for our state convention, noticed that there were some well-known Texas Baptist pastors encouraging, reposting, retweeting, partnering with false teachers, particularly prosperity gospel teachers. So we designed, you can find this online, a, we wrote together a resolution for the Southern Baptist of Texas State Convention to adopt. One of the statements that we made is, whereas the prosperity gospel is the corruption of biblical doctrines of suffering and the sovereignty of God, leaving those experiencing suffering in a hopeless state of doubt regarding God's favor for them in Christ Jesus, resolved that we declare and enjoy God Himself as our reward, teaching that He is our supreme treasure in heaven. The idea and the illustrations following in chapter 8 are that, Job, you're like a vine, and if you're doing good and you're right with God, you will flourish Grow up onto the house. If not, then you'll be destroyed. So you can trust. If you go plead with God, He will make your state better. But what this actually does is lead you, as that statement I just read mentioned, in a hopeless state of doubt regarding God's favor. Because suffering will come and multiply and increase and linger And if that's your litmus test for God's love and for God's favor, you will doubt and you will live in fear and you will not love God. And you will be confused at best. 
Surely God wants us to cry out to Him in our suffering. God wants us to come to Him. This is all through the Psalms. Job does this himself. But what Bildad is suggesting is that the reason you're suffering is because God just wants you to grovel, to, to come plead your case. And then He'll reward it. It's not crying out to God's sovereignty. It's not crying and surrendering yourself to God's will. It's suggesting that your pleading will rouse God. And the way out of suffering is to go plead with God and get Him to do something about it. And if you plead with God for mercy, Job, Bildad says, and God will rouse Himself up and restore your lot. Well, how do you think it went for the man trapped behind bars in the store? The manager came back to open the door with the police right behind her and put the man in cuffs. They took him away. Not sure if this is the answer to prayer that he was looking for in the moment. Maybe the one he needed, not the one he was asking for. Job gives three responses to build that that are exemplary for us. And then we'll have three applications to close. Job's first response when it comes to being sent on the errand of pleading with the Almighty is that God is too wise. Job chapter 9, verse 2 to 3. Truly I know that it is so, but can a man be in the right before God? If one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. Could I possibly go before God and stay in the right? Who doesn't go to God and mess up in their words? We could have a, a thousand conversations, a thousand, a thousand rounds of pleading, and I would be found foolish and it would be pointless and it would be vain over and over again. Look down in chapter 9, verse 13 through 15. God will not turn back His anger. Beneath Him are bowed the helpers of Rahab, an ancient Egyptian mythological creature. This is referring to God's strength and His resolve. Verse 14, How then can I answer Him, choosing my words with Him? Though I am in the right, I cannot answer Him. I must appeal for mercy to my accuser. Some people think that might refer to Satan. It literally just means judge. It's probably talking about God. I must appeal for mercy to God. What words should I choose, Bildad? What, what string of words should I put together that will do the trick? Is there, are, there, are there some magic words? What words do you put together that will rouse God up in your suffering? My kids will try different tactics from time to time if they don't like the first answer that I give them. Dad, can we get some ice cream? No, not today. Okay, but Dad. Yeah, not today. Oh, okay, okay, but Dad, but what if... And Job recognizes he can never find the words to plead with God. It's hopeless. Usually, don't tell my kids this, I'm three or four asked from getting ice cream any given day. But there's no magic words that we go plead with God to make Him do what we... What would you say? What, what would be equal to this suffering in the situation? If Job did not get into the situation because of his sin, then what could he say or do to get out of it? How could he convince God? 
God is wise in heart, it says, the beginning of verse 4. What can I say to him? God is too strong. In Job chapter 9, verse 4 through 12. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength, who has hardened himself against him and succeeded. I mean, I, I, I come to a place of resolve that I'm going to go to God and, and we're going to wrestle. I'm going to plead. I'm, I'm coming out of this with a blessing. Well, who has hardened himself against God and succeeded? He, he removes mountains and, and they know it not. They don't, they don't even know. When he overturns them in his anger, who, who shakes the earth out of its place and pillars tremble, who commands the sun and it does not rise, who seals up the stars, who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the ways of the sea, who made the bear and Orion, the Pleiades and the chambers of the south, who does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number. Behold, he passes by me and I see him not. He moves on, but I don't perceive him. Behold, he snatches away, and who can turn him back? Who will say to him, what are you doing? God's too strong. I'll, I'll never wear down God with my pleading. I'll never tire him out and win my case because he just decides he's done. God's out there in the cosmos moving mountains and drawing constellations with stars. God's strength is unimaginable to us. He never gets tired. Job, on the other hand, he can't even pick his head up. Look at chapter 10, verse 14 through 15. Job 10, 14 through 15. If I sin, you watch me and you do not acquit me of my iniquity. And listen to what Job says. If I am guilty, woe to me. When it comes to pleading with God, if I'm guilty, then, then woe to me. But look what he says next. If I'm in the right, I can't lift my head for I'm filled with disgrace and look on my affliction. And Job's saying, in my suffering, you want me to go and plead with God and you want me to take up my case with the Almighty in heaven who made the stars and moves the mountains? I can't even pick up my head. I can't even get out of bed this morning. You ever been there? Bildad... Is that friend showing up to the sufferer with just too much energy? All right, let's go. Let's go talk to God. Let's go plead and let's go have some back and forth with God. And Job says, God has brought me so much suffering, I can't even get up. You don't get it, Bildad. How can I plead with God? I, I have no strength to go contend with God and plead my case for Him. He's too much. Number three, God is sovereign and free. God is sovereign and free. Job is basically saying, Bildad, have you met God? God is not some daytime TV civil court judge. Where you get in line, you have some laughs, and you get God to make a decision about who's supposed to replace the car carpet in your apartment. Look what he says in verse 13. He understands God is resolved and sovereign and free. God will not turn back his anger beneath him about the helpers of Rahab. God's not a, a pet to be directed. Those who serve that ancient creature 
serve Him. It's the other way around. He, he's the one leading and guiding and sovereign. Look at verse 14. How then can I answer him, choosing my words with him? Though I am in the right, I cannot answer him. I must appeal for mercy to my accuser. If I summoned him and he answered me, I would not believe that he was listening to my voice. For he crushes me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not let me get my breath, but fills me with bitterness. How can I be in a pleading conversation with God when He won't let me even catch a breath and my every part of my being is bitter? There's no cause I can see for this. Why would I, what would I even begin to say to God? Verse 19. If it's a contest of strength, behold, He's mighty. I'm not going to outstrengthen God. If it's a matter of justice, who can summon Him? Though I am in the right... Even if I'm with no sin, when I go in to plead with God, my own mouth would condemn me in my pleading. Though I was blameless, He would prove me perverse. Even if I'm without sin and pleading with God, God would prove me as a sinner immediately. Verse 21. I'm blameless and I regard not myself. I loathe my life. It's all one, Bildad. Therefore I say, look what he says, He destroys both the blameless and the wicked. Here's what I have to say, Bildad. God destroys both the blameless and the wicked. That's my theology. When disaster brings sudden death, He mocks at the calamity of the innocent. In other words, God is free to do that. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the faces of its judges. If it is not he, then who then is it? Why are we pleading with God when God's sovereignty means that his disaster falls on the blameless and the wicked? Righteous people suffer. Wicked people suffer. What argument am I going to make to God when he is simply sovereign and free? In your pleading, you will find God is absolutely free to act and live as He sees wise. It doesn't always make sense to us because sometimes what God is doing is purely by His absolute freedom to do whatever He thinks is wise and doesn't have any connection to what's going on in our lives or our suffering or, excuse me, our sin. And there's no trade that makes sense to us. There's no equivalency that makes sense to us. But God is not bound by man-made expectations about what is fair. Not to the wicked or to the righteous. God is the one who will execute all His plans of disaster and calamity, of redemption and provision, of grace and mercy, of justice and punishment, according to His wisdom. I'm pleading with God, a God who does whatever He wants according to the wisdom in His own heart, both to the wicked and to the righteous. God is too wise. God is too strong. God is sovereign and free. What am I going to do, Bildad? Plead with the Almighty. What is pleading going to change? You're stuck. Locked behind bars in your suffering. What is your pleading and begging going to do if you can't even find the strength to do it? 
complete. Bildad is wrong for suggesting that Job can just go plead with God and make an emotion appeal for God to rouse himself up. Job recognizes he can't do that. That's not how it works. God is too wise. God is too strong for his pleadings. And God is sovereign and free over the righteous and the wicked alike. So what can we do? Number one, trust in Christ. God hears him the first time and forgives sin. Trust in Christ. God hears him, Jesus, the first time and it's through him we have forgiveness of sin. Look at one of Job's final thoughts in that first section. Job, John, excuse me, sorry, John was building block. Job 9, 33 to 35. Job understands very keenly Build that between me and God, there's no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on both of us. We read through this passage in staff meeting this morning, uh, this Tuesday morning. There's no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on both of us. And several staff members perked up and said, well, I think we know better. When you come to God in your suffering, trust that your pleadings have been heard and received and that your sin is forgiven, even when in God's wisdom, God does not alleviate your suffering immediately. How can you do that? Because Christ is pleading for the forgiveness of your sins in your place. There is one God... Paul told Timothy. One mediator between God and man. The man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. It doesn't matter if you're a king. It doesn't matter if you're poor. It doesn't matter if you are suffering a little or a lot. It doesn't matter if you have it easy. There's one God. There's one mediator between us and Him. There is only one man who can, so to speak, lay his hand on both God and His holiness and His justice and His righteousness and on us who is man and flesh and sinful and deserving of all God's wrath. Only one man can place his hand on us and the Almighty and plead for us. You don't have to spend hours and hours in the midst of your suffering pleading for God to have mercy on you and to forgive your sin. You do not have to spend hours and hours pleading with God for mercy in your suffering for forgiveness of sin. Not that most of us will make it that long anyway. You don't have to have the magic words. You don't have to go to God over and over and over a thousand times trying to find the right conversation, the right passion, enough emotion to make God want to forgive you for your sins. Romans 3, to 25 there's no distinction. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His, God's grace as a gift. 
We're justified before Him. You don't have to come plead. We're justified by His grace as a gift. God gives you justification. He gives you grace that through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. You get into suffering and you start doing one of those two things we mentioned, which is start to confess your sins. Maybe a little motive out there underneath that just wants to get out of the situation so you start confessing your sins. Maybe you really think that this is wholly, totally connected to your sins. So if you'll confess your sins, if you go pleading, confessing your sins, and, and if you're really sorry, and if you you're, you're really, really, really plead with God, then He'll hear you and He'll rouse up and He'll do something. That's not the Gospel. The gospel is that in heaven and in history and in redemption, before you were born, God put Jesus forward onto the cross as a propitiation. Someone to suffer in your place by His blood. Luke chapter 24, the road to Emmaus, Jesus teaches that he is the Christ. He reminds those two disciples who first didn't recognize him. He opened their minds to understand the scriptures and he said to them about all the scriptures, he says, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and die and on the third day raised from the dead and that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. When you're in the midst of suffering and you're calculating your sin and how much of your sin has caused you certain suffering, remember the whole flow of Scripture according to Jesus. The whole testimony of Scripture is pointing towards Jesus' suffering. Towards Jesus' suffering for the forgiveness of sins. When you are looking at your suffering, look to Jesus' suffering on the cross and know that His suffering is the suffering and the shedding of blood that paid for your sins, not yours. In fact, the suffering that we deserve for our sin, we'll never experience it while we're breathing. No one ever gets what we deserve from God while we are still alive. Never. The wages for sin, we just read, is death. Death. That's what God gives us for our sin. And Jesus suffered death. He didn't just have a hard time. He didn't just have a bad life. He didn't just get picked on online. He bled for the remission of sins. So in our suffering, our plea for forgiveness is found in the mediator, the arbiter, who has his hand on the Almighty and on us, who suffered for the forgiveness of sins. And, and you hear Job, I, I couldn't answer God a thousand times. You give me a thousand chances to go plead with God, I'll never get it right. But when Jesus, the mediator, speaks to God, risen from the dead, having suffered and died and shed His blood, His resurrection is God saying to Jesus, yes, the first time He suffered for your sin. 
your words piled on, don't convince God to forgive you for your sin. You can't win an argument with God about your sin. You don't have the strength to go a thousand rounds and find the right combination of conversation with God to forgive your sin. We get into suffering, we tend to want to confess our sin because we think that's how we got into it and we think that's the only way out of it. The song before the throne of God has always struck me as a big song, an anthem-like song for the church, but not until thinking through sin and the equation of suffering and how we tend to pray and plead with God that I think about before the throne of God above as a song for sufferers. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A strong and perfect plea before God. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is written on his hands. My name is written in his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. No tongue can bid me thence depart. When Satan tempts me to despair... And he tells me of my guilt within. Upward I look and I see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. To look on him and pardon me. That's the song for sufferers who need to know that their sin is forgiven. No amount of pleading and begging can replace the forgiveness that comes through Jesus Christ. Because of the mediator who suffered in your place, you can know in your suffering that your sin is forgiven. You can suffer and suffer and suffer and suffer and still know that your sin is forgiven because of the suffering mediator, Jesus Christ. Well, then what happens when you begin to separate your sin from your suffering? It may be that you're suffering some temporal or formative discipline for your sin. God's shaping you and making you more like Christ. But Christ has already suffered in your place for sin. So what do we do with the suffering when we can believe that our suffering isn't ultimately about our sin? We're already forgiven in Christ. Well, remember, remember, when we suffer, we tend to cry two things. One, forgive me. Well, we can trust Christ for that. And two, God, get me out of here. Like the man in the store. A second application this morning is to change your plea for God to get me out of here to God glorify your name in here. Change your plea from God, get me out of here to God Glorify your name in here. Since God has forgiven your sin in Christ, God is totally free to bring about suffering. And God is totally free to bring about your suffering on the wicked and the righteous. Then there must be some other designs for suffering besides only retribution for our sin. What do you do when you realize your sin is forgiven through Jesus Christ, but the baby in your wife's womb still has... term and would God willing let us 
meet Silas for a little while. We are treasuring every kick and punch and, in parentheses, somersault, knowing that he is alive and well and safe and strong. We continue to pray for a miracle, but also that God would change our hearts to trust his bigger picture plan. She says a verse that comes often to us lately is Daniel chapter 3. Even if God does not work a miracle, we know he is still good and Silas's and our best interests are in his mind. And she quotes Daniel three seventeen. If it be that our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But, she capitalizes, even, quote, capitalized, if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods and worship the golden image that you have set up. The world cannot fathom how much we treasure God until we are seen treasuring God in suffering like that. It is a gross distortion of who God is when His own people are seen grumbling and complaining about the job that other people are doing, mistakes that they're making, complaining to God about what He's brought into our life. There's no parking spots close. People who aren't handicapped are parking in the handicapped spots and it's terrible down here. Make this your pleading. God be glorified in my suffering. I trust that Christ is the forgiveness of my sins. I trust that I deserve this and and so much more. I deserve death. So I trust that Jesus has died for me. He's risen from the grave and through believing I can have life in Him. And so now of the suffering that you're giving me, would you be glorified? You be glorified. You, you help me show the world that you and your forgiveness through Christ is all the portion that I need in my life. And we would say things like Job has said from the beginning. God has given, He's taken away. Let the name of the Lord be praised. To his wife, we, we received good things from God, but we not also receive evil and trust too. Psalm 30, 7, 73, 26. My flesh and my heart may fail. God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Let that be our claim. Third, short application. As a church, help each other treasure God together in suffering. As a church, help each other treasure God together in suffering. You probably already know this, but if not, I will tell you as your pastor. There are a lot of people in our church going through a lot of hard things. There are a lot of people in our little church 
going through a lot of hard things. When someone is suffering, it may not be the moment to speak the truth in love for the purpose of correction and rebuke and spiritual growth. The suffering that God has allowed will probably be a better sanctifier than your counsel could be. God's discipline for His glory is perfect. It's not always our job to turn someone else's suffering into a life lesson. We ought to give counsel. We ought to point people to the Lord. We ought to read Scripture. We ought to call out sin. We ought to remind people of truths when they are believing lies. But come alongside each other. And, and, and say out loud, just in case you forgot, just in case you were wondering, just in case you need to be reminded, Jesus suffered for your sin. Jesus already suffered and, and died for your sin. So if nothing else today, we, we can just try our best to be encouraged in faith that what I'm suffering isn't meaning God hates me and has abandoned me and is refusing to care for me and is not listening to me and doesn't know me. Christ on the cross, friend, brother, sister, His suffering for us is God's love and declaration that He's not giving us over to our sin. Let's remember that together. I don't know all the answers. I don't know what God's doing, but let's remember the gospel together so that we can have that confidence. And also when we come to each other, let's tell God how we're doing and pray for His glory together. I might mean crying together, groaning together, asking for God's help together, making your feelings known to God. I've heard of, that sounds too weird to say, I've heard members in some weird spots helping each other before. But all the while, helping each other, we can't know everything, we, we can't fix everything, but we can treasure God together. And Bildad should have let it be. Instead, he became impatient. Remember what Bildad said back in chapter 8, verse 2. How long will you say these things? How long are you going to go about? And the words of your mouth are a great wind. Bildad at some point just had to say, stop moaning, go plead with God and fix this. I, I can't keep showing up here every day and you having a hard time. Bildad should have remained with Job, kept quiet with Job. He should have been the kind of friend who recognizes what Job knew. The theology that God destroys both the blameless and wicked. So what are we going to do? Bildad should have recognized this suffering began when God's sovereignty permitted it and it will end when God sovereignly permits it. The duration of this suffering is not attached to my sin which was paid for by Christ. So as long as God allows you to be in it, I'll be with you 
encouraging you to pray, to plead for God to be glorified. A prayer of God will always answer affirmatively. Christians, we help each other keep faith while we're suffering. Instead of being like Bildad and counseling each other to plead your way out of suffering, we help each other praise God in our suffering. I mean, suffering for a long time and you support them for a long time and you think they should have gotten better, you think things should have gone away, you think their circumstances should have changed by now, and so you might begin to think, you know what, I think they must have done something wrong. Now, this wouldn't have lasted so long. Sometimes this means sitting in a room without saying anything. Sometimes this means sending flowers, making a meal. Sometimes this means a phone call on Monday afternoon just to say, I was thinking about you, how are you doing? I'm praying for you today. Our gut reaction and our counsel as brothers and sisters can be very simple. The Lord has given, the Lord has taken away. Let the name of the Lord be praised. We receive good from God, we will receive evil too. And we do have an arbiter who can lay his hand on the Almighty and on us. Christ is our forgiveness. God is glorified when we treasure him in all our suffering. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your love for us in Jesus Christ. We thank you that in our suffering we can, we can be curious about what you're doing and why you might do it like that and why you would allow certain things, but we, we don't have to be curious and unknowing about your favor toward us in Christ. I pray that you this week as we experience suffering, that we would be thankful that our sins have been forgiven through Christ, the mediator who suffered for us. That through whatever comes this week, God, whatever you would allow, we would know your love in Christ. And you help us be a church that loves each other well, that takes notice and plays the long game with one another. Not being impatient like Job's friend, but help us Love one another well, together treasuring you as our supreme treasure in all of our suffering, that you might be glorified in the church and in the world. In Jesus' name, amen.